You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. It's good to, uh, it's good to see y'all. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake, and I'm just uh, so glad that you've joined us today to celebrate uh, Jesus' resurrection uh, together. Uh, We are in a series that we have entitled uh, Meals with Jesus, and in this series what we're doing is we're just looking at a few different stories in the Gospels where Jesus shares a meal with people. And the reason we're doing that is because Jesus often revealed who he was and what he came to do most clearly over a meal. And so today we're going to read a passage in Luke 24. And Rachel, you can come on up. You're going to, Rachel's going to read that for us. Um, and in this passage, there you go. The, uh, in this passage, Jesus does what he often does over a meal. He, he reveals who he is in a pretty fascinating and interesting way. It's going to be fun to look at this morning. But first, let's read it. If you don't mind, if, you, if you're able, stand, stand for the reading of God's word now, and Rachel, take it away. Come up here. Luke 24, 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found, found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen. This is the word of the Lord.
So, uh, I love this passage. It's pretty interesting. And the passage begins with uh, these two uh, disciples of Jesus uh, feeling incredibly downcast uh, because they have uh, lost hope. They have, um, at the end of the story, they find themselves eating with Jesus, but at the beginning of the story, they had absolutely zero expectation that they would ever eat another meal with Jesus because uh, Jesus had died, and they fully expected that Jesus would do what dead people do, which is stay dead, you know? And so, uh, there you go. It's a little laughter. I know it wasn't that funny, but thanks for, the, thanks for some encouragement. I appreciate that. The, um, now, the... Uh, they, they, they probably, well, they were at that time just completely without hope that they were going to see Jesus again. They had no expectation of the resurrection. And, and my guess is that some of y'all in this room today are, are probably a lot like they were. That you're here today, but you're really not so sure that what we're celebrating on Easter actually happened. Like, did Jesus really rise again? And I just want you to know, if that's where you are we're just so glad that you're here. We really are. And, and we, we want you to know that, that you don't have to believe what we believe in order to join us on Sundays or, uh, even more importantly, to be our friends. All right? You can, you can disagree with us on, on key things like the resurrection of Jesus. We still want to be your friend. We hope that you'll still want to be our friend. Like, we, we, you know, the, the have questions about the resurrection, it, it makes sense. In fact, none of Jesus' followers, first followers, believed that Jesus was going to rise again. Like, they all had doubts about that, too. So, and you see that in this story with these two downcast followers of Jesus. Jesus had died. They did not expect to see him Again, and as a result, they were feeling like their hope was lost. See, when, when Jesus died, uh, their hope that Jesus was more than a rabbi, you know, more than a, a prophet, that that hope died with Jesus. That when Jesus died, their hope that Jesus was going to be the Messiah that redeemed Israel from Roman oppression. That was their big hope. That hope died. See, they say a kind of key line in this passage. When they say, uh, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Uh, past tense. But now their, their hope was gone. And so it's interesting because they, they head out of town. They leave Jerusalem, walking towards Emmaus. And, and what's interesting about that is that as they shared here, there had been reports earlier that day that something Weird had happened. The, the, the women had found that the tomb was empty and, and there was an angel. And like, what's that about? And they said, the angel said that Jesus was alive. And then, and then others went and found the tomb was empty, but no one had seen Jesus. But if you were, like, if I was them, I would be thinking like, hey, well, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, right? Like, I'm, I'm going to stick it in town and find out what happened. But that's not what these two guys do. They head out of town towards Emmaus. 
And you think, well, why would they do that? I'll tell you, it's because they had lost hope. They had lost hope. They, they, had, they didn't think it was even worth trying to figure out. Perhaps they didn't think that they could figure it out. They, they were confused about what to believe, and they were just down. <laughs> Faces downcast. They lost hope. They were down, and they didn't know what to believe. The uh, theologian Edward Schillenbecks was once asked, if you had to pick one story or text from the Bible to name our cultural moment in the postmodern West, what would you pick? I guess if you're a theologian, you get asked questions like that. I don't know. But he had an answer ready. He said, uh, I would pick Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. And the reason why that was a passage that he would pick is because just like the two disciples in this story, our cultural moment in this postmodern West is marked by increasing hopelessness, depression, and confusion. The statement, we had hope, captures a really prevailing sentiment of our day, doesn't it? See, uh, not too long ago, in the age of modernity, people were full of hope. Yeah, they were full of visions of progress, capitalism, or socialism, or communism, or liberalism, or scientific progress, or industrial progress, technological progress, that there was a sense that history was on an onward march towards a bright future. But postmodernity recognizes the dark side of progress. The growing divide between the uh, uber rich and the poor, the pollution of the planet, climate change, social and political fragmentation, all the wonders of the internet, all of the dark side of the internet. So there's not now, there's now a widespread distrust and the grand narratives of progress. Just this February, Newsweek published an article entitled, uh, How America Lost Its Optimism, just this February. And uh, in that article, they cite a survey that indicated that 42% of Americans feel pessimistic about the future, 42%, whereas only 29% indicate that they feel optimistic about the future. See, there, 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 not too long ago, there was a, just a common consensus that uh, every upcoming generation was going to have it better than the generation that preceded them. But now, we don't feel that way. See, we, we had hoped, but now that hope is fading. I got a picture of that the other day. I was, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny, I was driving my daughter Della, 10-year-old daughter Della, and her friend, uh, we were just taking them to over to our house to play. And on the way, they're talking. I'm not really paying attention. But then there's kind of this uh, moment where there's, okay, things get a little intense, and there's like a little, little yelling, kind of shouting. And what I hear is, Della, because of this, we're all going to die in 30 years. Like one of those moments as a dad, I'm like, hey, so what, what are y'all talking about, you know? 
Turns out uh, they were talking about the uh, controversial Willow Project. If you don't know, it's a, it's a project that was approved in, for oil drilling in, in uh, northern Alaska. And, and uh, according to Della's friend, it, it spells dooms, doomsday for all of humankind in at least 30 years. And so, um, <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but like when I was 10, oh, that's not what I was talking about. Baseball cards, candy, video games, those were my kind of go-to subjects. But it's just a, just a snapshot of our cultural moment. There's not a hope for a bright future. Our uh, secular worldview, the common secular worldview of today, only uh, adds to the sense of hopelessness for many these days. See, uh, whereas uh, in uh, what was considered kind of the Christendom time of America, which is, a, you know, you can argue about that, but the common system of belief was that there was a creator, and there's creation, and then there's, there's something after this life. But now, sociologists say that uh, this day and age is, is considered post-Christian, and in a post-Christian mindset, we've, we've traded one system of belief for another system of belief that says that there is no creator and therefore no creation. There's just, just uncaused accidents. And there is no sense of, of future after this that nature with a capital N is all that there is. And as a result, that uh, you, you know, you're going to die and that's it. And then... You know, probably in about 30 years, I've heard, all of us are going to die. <laughs> and we'll eventually all be forgotten. Uh, I was reading one author who was kind of summing up this worldview. He, said, he put it this way. He said, we are insignificant accidents in an uncaused chaos heading nowhere but entropy. And that's, that's a prevailing secular worldview in our day, and um, it doesn't it really elicit hope, does it? Like, happy Easter, everyone. Like, this is, wow, so glad I came to worship on, a, on Easter Sunday, just to be down in the dumps. But um, I, I hope that it lifts up from here. But I, I just do want to say that, like, this is a problem. The hopelessness in our post-Christian, post-modern West, it's a problem because um, we are hope-based creatures. Like We need hope in order to thrive and flourish. I can think about what Emil Bruner, uh, the theologian, once said. He said, what oxygen is to the lungs, hope is to the meaning of life. Which is to say that hope is essential for life and flourishing. It's why, and it's why a lack of hope often accompanies depression and really even leads to suicide, which we know are both skyrocketing in our country today. The author and Columbia University professor Andrew DeBlanco says in his uh, book, The Real American Dream, A Meditation of Hope, he says, quote, we cannot bear life by merely living in the present, facing one 
disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desires. We need to believe our lives are a story that is leading us somewhere significant. Green goes on in the book to say we need to believe that because uh, that belief incites hope. And without hope, we will not thrive. But friends, uh, like the two travelers on the road to Emmaus, many today feel like they're not headed anywhere significant. And yet, just like those two travelers, we still seem to just kind of press on, feeling down and unsure about what to believe. See, remember, they had heard reports of the empty tomb, uh, but they didn't know what to make of it. And so they just carried on under this kind of cloud of confusion, which is what so many of us seem to do these days. We just have a hard time really knowing what is true, right? I mean, there's just so many viewpoints out there, so many thoughts, so many opinions, so many religions, so many traditions, so much science, so much interpretation of science, and this person says this, and this person says that, that we just kind of, in the end, feel like we, a lot of times we just kind of shrug and say, well, I just, I don't really know, <laughs> you know, who can really know? And this filters into our views even about Jesus, that most people know that he was a historical figure, like he really lived. I mean, there's plenty of evidence about that, and that he was a prophet or a teacher. Most people seem to think that, but like, you know, was he more than that? Like, and did he really die and rise again? Like that kind of thing? It's just, it's just like we've come to a point for many in our culture where we just kind of all say, who knows? Can you really know? And there's just this kind of widespread agnosticism in our culture when it comes to Jesus and the claims that he's actually God and that he really rose again. They were like, you know, we're like these two on the road to Emmaus, just not sure. And so we press on into life, but there is this undercurrent of hopelessness and melancholy and confusion. But friends, what if Jesus really did rise again? What if he really did walk out of that tomb that first Easter morning? And what if he really is who he said he is? Not just a prophet or a teacher, but actually the embodiment of God, God the Son in the flesh, come to be with us. What would that mean? And I tell you, it would mean we have every reason to have hope. I would tell you that, that it would be incredibly good news in our day and age. That, that if Jesus <laughs> rose... <laughs> Let's have at it. You want to go? Let's go. The, uh... <laughs> Love it. Awesome. But friends, it really would be incredible good news. 
Because listen, if, if Jesus really is God come to live, die, and rise again, then you know what that means? It means that his resurrection was the beginning of the end of death and entropy's reign. If Jesus really rose, it means that his resurrection was the inauguration of the world being set right with everything, where everything will be restored to how it was meant to be. And all those who trust in him will be resurrected to live with him, not out in the clouds somewhere, but here on this earth made new, fully restored with peace and justice and love and human flourishing. See, if Jesus really did rise again, then we have every reason to be filled with incredible hope and joy and the confidence that our lives really are moving towards something significant and a bright and beautiful future. And you know what that should cause us to do? It should cause us to investigate. It should cause us to lean in and really ask the questions. Instead of giving the general shrug of, well, who can really know? We say, well, let's try to find out. Let's see if there's actually a reason to believe that Jesus rose again. Let's find out if there are any reasonable reasons to believe. And friends, this might completely surprise you, but I think that there are. And it's, it's interesting, even in this passage, I think there are three reasons that we're given that the, the, that the author, Luke, really kind of goes out of his way to give us, to show us that it's reasonable to believe that Jesus really did rise again. And he really did join Cleopas and his friend on that road to Emmaus to help restore their hope. Now, but here's the thing, and I, I want to be, you know, I want to be honest about this. I don't know about you, but like when Rachel was reading through that passage, there are a couple parts in it that really, like initially, you read and you think, uh, now this is, this is clearly a legend. Because there's some weird stuff in there, right? I mean, like why does Jesus, if he really is like alive again and he's got these disciples on the road to Emmaus and they, Jesus comes up and joins them on the road, how do they not notice it's Jesus, right? I mean, that, that seems to kind of reek of legend. It just feels really weird. And, and, and so, you know, this week I was reading, I was reading a book um, uh, called Meals with Jesus, fitting the theme of this series. And in it, the author, Tim Chester, he talks about how there was a, uh, a, a painter, artist, who, uh, Carvaggio, perhaps you've heard of him, who, wrote, who uh, painted a pretty famous painting about the, the mill of Emmaus. And in it, Carvaggio uh, does something that was really rare for that 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 time period is he depicts Jesus as being beardless. And I think I've got the picture up here. There it is. Um, as if that was uh, Caravaggio's ex- uh, reason for perhaps why his disciples didn't recognize Jesus. So he just said, he just shaved. He was in the tomb. <laughs> it's killing time. He's like, you know, I'm taking this thing off. I'm going to go down. I really got a kick out of that this week because I, uh, uh, this, uh, Krista and I celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary on Monday. And so she, uh, yeah, applaud her. That just tells you she's long-suffering and so patient and kind. But anyways, the, um, I got a kick out of it because Krista uh, posted on Insta a picture of us when we first got married. And I think that's up here too. And uh, look at me, baby-faced. And um, 
Krista looks the same. I look a little bit different, right? And uh, it's funny, she posts this, and, and I had a number of neighbors come up to me this week, I'm not kidding, and be like, hey, I saw that picture. I realized I have no idea what you look like without a beard. I've never seen you without a beard. I, had, I, mean, I, couldn't, I took a double test. I was like, is that really him? But, uh, but I, I really don't think that the reason that the disciples didn't recognize Jesus on the road of Amazing is because he shaved his beard. That's, that's not the case. In fact, we're told in verse 16, the reason that they didn't recognize him is that they were kept from recognizing him. But that stuff is weird, right? I mean, that supernatural element about, I mean, it's as if rising from the dead isn't enough to have to deal with, like, overcome that as a, like, did that really happen? But then you get these stories, and then it's like these other supernatural elements, and you're just like, I don't know, maybe you just throw all of this out. It's just legend. But like I said, Luke goes out of his way in this passage to help us see that this is not a legend, that this actually really happened. First way that he does that is that he makes it clear that this is eyewitness testimony. Now listen, I'm telling you this because if, if the hope of the resurrection is real, then that's incredible. And so we need to know, is it real? Was there a reason to believe it? Well, one would be that you look at this and you see that this is actually eyewitness testimony. The reason that I say it's eyewitness testimony is because, uh, do you notice how only one of the disciples in this story is named? Verse 18, we're told that it's Cleopas and the other disciple that are on the road. Now, why only name one of them? Like, if it's a legend, you're giving them both names, or you're not giving them any names. Why name only one? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. Well, Richard Bauckham who's a world-class historian and a senior scholar at Cambridge. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And in that book, he explains how if you or I were to write a historical document today, we would include footnotes so that readers could check our sources, right? Fact check what we're claiming to be true or not. But Bauckham says that in the first century, they didn't use footnotes. Instead, they used names of living eyewitnesses so that people could go and check with them to see if what the author said was true, which is what Luke is doing here when he gives us Cleopas' name. See, what Luke was doing is he's telling his original audience, hey, this is what happened, and if you don't believe me, then go and ask Cleopas, for he's still alive, and he will tell you. He will verify this account. See, Luke wants his readers to know that what he says here is the result of eyewitness testimony. It is not legend. It is not just made up. It's not just a nice story. It really happened. That's the first bit of evidence. Second, second is this, second reason to believe that this is a reliable account and that Jesus really did rise from the grave is because uh, Luke doubles down in these verses that the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb were women. Now, I say he doubles down because he had already said in the beginning of Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, that women were the first to find the empty tomb. 
And, those, and in those verses, those women are named. It's Mary Magdalene, it's Joanna, it's Mary, the mo- mother of James. And so, again, he's referring to them by name because they were still living in the time that he wrote Luke and said, you could go and ask those women if what I'm saying is true. They saw it. And that's significant. But the reason that he includes women here is also significant for us because in that day and age, and as dumb as it is, and it is very dumb, In that day and age, women's testimony was not seen as credible. That women, is really well documented, women were not allowed to be witness, to testify in court. That they were said that women are not reliable sources of information. Now, just to be really, really clear, that's not my view. But in that day and age, it was the view. And, And the reason that that is worth bringing up is because uh, if that's true, then Luke would have absolutely no reasonable explanation for why he would cite women as the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. It would actually undermine his argument. If he's trying to get people to believe that the tomb was empty and that Jesus has risen, he would, he would absolutely not cite Women, it would work against his argument. There's no reasonable reason for why to cite women as his eyewitnesses unless it really happened. And he's just telling us what really took place. That Mary Magdalene, that Joanna, that Mary, the mother of James, they found that tomb empty. They heard from that angel. He has risen. He tells us that because it really happened. It's, a, it's the only reasonable explanation. There's one more piece of evidence here that this is not legend but actual testimony. And that is uh, just simply the unfiltered and frankly embarrassing testimony of the disciples. See, um, in verse 25, you, you literally have the risen Jesus saying to his disciples, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I read that and I think, ouch, <laughs> right? Like, man, that's not really what I would want to hear from the risen Christ, you know, if I'm one of his disciples, I'm, that's not what I'm hoping to hear. And yet apparently, Cleopas and his friend, they, they, after finding out who they really had come for dinner, run back to Jerusalem and they report all of this to the, the other disciples. And the other disciples were like, well, what did he say to you? And Cleopas says, well, you know, it didn't start off so good. Yes, uh, I think he might have said that we were foolish and really slow. Uh, but, you know, it got better after that. But um, what's wild, though, is that uh, <laughs> this is not abnormal. You read through the gospel accounts, and all of Jesus' disciples are not bathed in this beautiful, you know, filtered light. Instead, it's just unfiltered warts and all. They look like cowards. 
They lack faith. They abandon Jesus in his greatest time of suffering. Peter denies Jesus. I mean, on and on and on. They, they don't paint themselves as heroes. And what's weird, because if these books, this gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Luke, especially Matthew and Mark and Luke, were written during this time, that they were still alive, which there's a ton of evidence is the case, then they were the leaders of the Jesus movement when these were written. These disciples, the apostles, they were the leaders of the Jesus movement, of the church when this was written. And if they're the leaders of the church, they would probably be saying, hey guys, look, this, if we're going to make this up, then uh, let's at least make us look good so people will respect us and follow our leadership, right? But that's not what they do. It's unfiltered testimony. Why would they allow unfiltered testimony about them that made them look bad? It's because they were just telling it like it is. It's because it's what really happened. And so, Cleopas really was that foolish and that slow. And he really did see the risen Jesus. That's just the evidence, friends, that you could point out from this passage. I could go on and on. There's so much more. I mean, you just think about, like, how do you explain that this, that, oh, that this entire group, tons and tons of Jewish monotheists who refused to bow down to the gods of Rome or Greece would all of a sudden begin worshiping a Jewish rabbi as the embodiment of God to the point that thousands and thousands and thousands of them would be killed for that belief. Why do that? It doesn't make any sense unless they heard or saw that Jewish rabbi walked out of the tomb on the third day. There really is. There's, there is incredible, reasonable reasons to believe that Jesus rose again. Think about this quote by Professor Thomas Arnold, author of the History of Rome. Who was a, he was the former chair of modern history at Oxford University, bigwig. And after carefully sifting through the historical evidence of the resurrection of Christ, he said this, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proven by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. And friends, you know what that means? It means there are very good reasons for you and for me to have hope. To have hope that because of Jesus, we have a bright future ahead of us. That, this, that all who trust in him, that death is not the end and the future we long for is truly coming. A future full of peace and loving personal relationships on this earth, but made new and perfected, enjoyed and physically resurrected bodies and most of all. That one day, just like Cleopas and his friend, we will all sit down at a table 
and break bread with, share a meal with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as good as all of that is, the hope that we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection isn't just limited to the future. For if Jesus is risen, then that means he can walk with you even now in this life, drawing near to you with his presence to comfort you even in the hopeless and hard times that you face and that I face in this world. See, one of the things that I love most about this story is how Jesus pursues these two downcast guys in the midst of their hopelessness and confusion. What's interesting is that he doesn't just announce that he's a, who he is and that he's alive. Like, if I'm Jesus, I'm like, hey, guys, check it out. Look, it's me. I'm alive. How awesome is that? Check out the scars. You see this? Yeah, look at that. That's not what Jesus does with these guys, is it? What's he do? He catches up to them, and he asks them a question. Verse 17. What are you discussing together as you walk along? Which is to say that he gives them space to tell their story, to share their pain and their disappointment as he walks along with them. Walking with God is one of the most theologically significant metaphors in all of the Bible. It's used to describe an intimacy and closeness to the God who is not distant and removed from our lives and our world, but who is right here with us even as we experience the hardships and sufferings and troubles of this life. A God who draws near to us so that he can, as we see in this story, restore our hope by his comforting and loving presence. See, these guys were reeling. But Jesus comes and he meets them right where they were. They had lost hope because Jesus had died. And so what does Jesus do? He explains to them why the Messiah had to die. And he says in verse 26, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And man, I tell you, I would have loved to have been able to be a part of that Bible study, right? To download that podcast, that would be probably well worth a listen. But I, you know, my bet is that in this, time, this walk with these guys, and he's unpacking scripture and all of it says about why he had to die and who he really is. My guess is that he takes them to Isaiah 53 at some point. For Isaiah 53 says this, that he, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That we all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, these guys had hoped that Jesus 
was going to be the one who would redeem Israel from Roman rule. But on the road to Emmaus, Jesus helped them see that he had done far more than that. For he had purchased the redemption of all who trust in him. He had been pierced for our transgressions. He had been crushed for our iniquities so that there can be peace between us and God forever. See, Jesus met the guys right where they were. And so when they finally arrived to Emmaus, they urge him to stay with them. And Jesus does. For Jesus always comes where he's wanted. And then we read, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and he broke it and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then Jesus disappears, which is such a Jesus move, you know? It's like I accomplished what I was going to do here and I'm on. Then look at what they say to each other. They say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. See, the story began with two guys leaving Jerusalem, downcast, without hope, and confused. And it ends with their hearts burning within them, their hope restored, returning to Jerusalem to share the good news with the other disciples. And friends, what made the difference? The presence of the risen Jesus is what made all the difference. Because Jesus died for our sins, and because he really did rise again from the grave, he has made it possible for you and for me to experience his presence, to know him, to know his love, to be comforted by his presence, and he, as he walks with us now, and to be comforted with a confidence of a hope that one day we will also eat with him in the future. See, he made it possible for us to know him and walk with him in a personal and intimate relationship right now to experience his presence through the gift of the, his spirit, to actually experience and know his love and grace and faithfulness, which has the power to help you through darkness, and through times of suffering, to comfort you even in the midst of the troubles that this world brings. Because he meets you where you are. He draws near to you because he loves you. He loves you so much that he came to earth and lived the life that we and you, we, we were all meant to live, but failed to live. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, but he, he took our punishment. By his wounds, we're healed. And because he did,
We can draw near to him. And he can draw near to us. To the point that you can know and have the confident hope that you are never alone, friends. That the God of the universe loves you so much that he came and died and rose again in order for you to be with him. You can be assured that as you walk through life, he walks with you. That, friends, that will give you hope. But it's not just that. It's also the hope that what is to come is what we've always longed for. That one day we will sit before Jesus just like these two disciples And we will break bread with God. How crazy is that? We'll share a meal with God. This idea of sharing a meal with God, breaking bread with God, it's another one of those theologically rich, significant metaphors. It speaks of this great intimacy and friendship and communion. And Jesus is saying, because of what I've done for you, you will have that with God. And we will eat in the kingdom of God, with God. It's our future. It's a bright and glorious future. It's a real hope. Our lives are headed towards something significant because of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. Because Jesus rose again because he is risen. Friends, I want you to have that hope. More importantly, Jesus wants you to have that hope. He wants it so bad for you that he literally died and rose again to make it possible. And friends, if, if you want that, if you say, okay, that, I, I, that's the hope that's found in Christ. I, I want that. Then I, I would just invite you to do what these two disciples did in this story. That when they got to Emmaus, what did they do? They urged him to stay. And that you would say to Jesus, Jesus, come, stay with me. And he will. Because Jesus always comes where he's wanted. And so you can tell him, Jesus, I believe that you died for me, for my sins. To reconcile me to God. I trust that you rose again, defeated death. My hope, my trust is in you. And in that moment, you were promised that never will he leave you and never will he forsake you. That you are secure in him and your hope is a confident hope. Friends, if if you want to put your trust in him today, if you're you're ready to tell Jesus, (laughs) stay with me, I believe, then we'd ask that you would let us know. Because as a church, what we're all about is is right here, (laughs) practicing the way of Jesus together. Put another way, it's trying to walk with Jesus together. And we want to help you learn to walk with Jesus, that this hope for you would come home to you in every day, in every moment. We want to help you do that. We need your help to help us do that too. So will you tell us so we can help each other? We're about to wrap up, but Alice and Cliff, two of our leaders, are going to be out in the back lobby um, during this next set of worship. 
And if there's anyone that you would like to, if you'd like to talk to someone about any of this, about trusting Jesus, walking with Jesus, or just if you want prayer with anything going on in your life, they would, they'll be back there. They'd love to talk with you. Oh. Now we're going we're gonna to take some time to worship our awesome Lord and Savior for the hope that's found in him, and for the love that was displayed by him, demonstrated to us through him. And so let me pray, and then let's worship. Father, huh. this, this is so good. And we need this hope so badly. We do, the people that we know and love, they do. But to know that, that there really is a bright future ahead of us because of Jesus. And to know the hope that we're not alone walking through the difficult times here and now. But that because of Jesus because of how he loves us and what he's done for us. He would draw near to us and be present with us to restore our hope even now. And there's so much hope found in Christ because of what we're celebrating this day. And we give you praise that Jesus rose from the grave. And we, help, we ask that you would help us more fully, more confidently believe that, that that hope that's found in him would come home to each of our hearts, that we would have the joy that is found because of what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished because of his victory over death and over sin. And God, I pray that for anyone here that is trying to decide, is this true or not? God, I just ask that you would give them a curiosity that would get them past coming to a point where they would just shrug and say, I guess we can't really know. Help them keep searching. And God, give and help them know that we'd love to help them in that. Because we've all been there ourselves at some point. God, fill us with hope because of what we're celebrating. And Lord, receive our praise because you are so worthy. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Mm-hmm.